Welcome to my podcast, Malcolm Hopwood. He's a professor of psychiatry at the Melbourne University in Victoria, Australia. You, you actually helped put together an app at the moment that's called Medicine X, right? That's right, Jeremy. It got me excited because it encourages community and understanding and storytelling around depression and schizophrenia. I think there are areas that need to be explored more in terms of understanding the nature of them and helping people. No, 100% yes. So illnesses like depression and schizophrenia are a part of our world mm. and they're a part of our world that for a long time we didn't talk about. Mm. Uh, they were hidden away. If you happened to suffer from them, you either went away in silence um, or if you're brave enough to put up your hand, you suffered an enormous amount of stigma and shame really. Thankfully, that's changing somewhat. I think perhaps particularly for depression, mm. but there's still a long way to go. Mm. One of the biggest needs, I think, is simple information. So if I think I might have that problem, or even if I do, how do I find out about it? Mm. Asking my doctor or my psychologist is okay, but sometimes I'm not sure what to ask or not sure how to ask it. Um, I don't want to feel like I don't know what I'm doing, Mm. or I think about it as soon as I get to the car park. Um, So this app, or these apps, are really about trying to provide information in another way. Mm. There's lots of information out there and no one way suits everyone. And and lots of people really like several bites at the cherry. So Mm. I talk to my doctor, I read something online, an app, you know, I might try several. That's that's fine. These apps turn it into a personal story. They're hung around the story of two guys with this illness. So might appeal to guys straight away. and hangs information off that. And I think that's a really accessible way. We all, we all like stories, right? Totally. Um, it's a great way to get information. Because mm. um, if someone presents cold facts from someone like me written up, mm-hmm. that that may not be the most exciting thing you've ever read. <laughs> I understand that. <laughs> but we need that as well because we need the exploration and the research and all that kind of stuff. But I think for me it's the community level and the disarming, the stigma. Because I went through chronic depression for a good couple of years. Yeah. And when you're in it, you don't really know that you're in it. And and you don't know how to – you can't read love. You're, you're don't really understand the nature of what you're going through. You're, it's quite bewildering and confusing and – there's denial and all sorts of many, many processes. And so I suppose it's just changing the social paradigm or the community-based paradigm in our culture where it's accessible and warm and and there's a thousand degrees in this as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Look, I think that's absolutely right. So the experience of illnesses like depression is as different uh, as people are different, mm. but there are common threads. Right. You're also absolutely right that for people who haven't experienced or perhaps experienced someone close to them suffering from depression, understanding just how much it impacts on everything you think and do Mm. and how insidious that can be is really difficult. Mm. Um, Even for the person suffering from depression, sometimes it's not until you're better that you realise, my God, I used to think that. I I used to think that I was... This bad person, for example, despite there being no objective evidence of me being a bad person, but at the time I was totally fixed in that thought. Looking back now, how did I think that? What Mm. was I thinking? Mm. Um, I guess part of putting out information for people is to to assist them to go, actually, I do think a bit like that and that is a bit like me. Not quite like that, but 
uh, that's a lot like me. Maybe I do have a problem like this and actually it looks like there's treatments out there that could help. I'm certainly not alone. We know one in five people has depression at some point in their life, Mm. like depression that we diagnose as an illness Mm. as opposed to supporting the Adelaide Crows, for example, (laughs) which is a transitory thing. Um, But, you know, depression we call an illness. One in five. So you're not alone, even though at the time it feels an awful lot like you are. And you're not alone in the kind of thoughts you're having and people get better. I think that's such an important message Mm. um, because it's hard to believe that when you're Mm. in the middle of it. Totally. And I mean, for me, there was a big spiritual component towards my, like, in terms of meditation or discovering my own practice that I feel like may not necessarily be uh, acknowledged so much in medicine. Or maybe, maybe it is like you're on the pioneering end of all this. So you might be able to answer that better than me. But for me, seeing a psychologist was so important, but also understanding the nature of my chemical imbalance. So the science of that, and then mainly food and exercise. I mean, for my particular form of like, and everyone's different again with this. So there's no real, like you say, one sweeping thing, but the spiritual component or the meditation, you know, being still with my mind and, and spiritual is also community and um, connection and relationship and all that kind of stuff. And that kind of connection with other humans is so important, particularly relating to people who are in similar positions. And I suppose that's why I love this app again so much is because it, to me, that's a spiritual component is to see someone else is telling their story about their exact same thing and me being able to commune with them or, or feel them or connect with them. And I think you're right. There's lots of things that can help with depression. Mm. If there was a thing to say to people, it's beware of someone who tells you there's only one answer. Yeah. Because that's almost <laughs> yeah. certainly not true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah true. Um, <laughs> in deciding which things help, it, it is a very individual thing. Mm. It's also really important to get a good assessment at the start about how severe things are. Because, you know, if depression gets severe, there are certain things that we'd consider that if it's mild to moderate, it'd be quite different. Mm. So we need to get in the right ballpark first. Right. So things like exercise, for example, really can be helpful and they're particularly relevant in mild to moderate depression. Mm. Once it's more severe, the kind of level of exercise you need to do to help, give it up. It's not going to happen, right? You're that depressed and amotivated, you're not going to be able to do it. So... Someone saying, oh, I know exercise helps depression. Yeah, in the right circumstances. Mm. We're not all exercisers as well, you know. Mm. Some of us love exercise and some people it's just not who they are. Mm. You're absolutely right about connections with other people being very important. Uh, One of the key things that can happen in depression and actually in schizophrenia as well is that people drop out of social networks. Um, That can be both a risk factor for getting problems and also making it worse. Mm. So we really do encourage interaction with other people as much as you can tolerate. Mm. That depends a bit at the time. Mm. And, yeah, interaction with other people who've shared that problem can be really helpful for some people. Often feels like a big thing at first. You know, do I do I really want to talk to other people who've had it? Mm. Um, will that help me? Or sometimes their stories might make me feel worse. Mm. Look, generally we think it is helpful. Um, Horses for courses, not for everyone, but generally we think it's helpful. And there are a lot of great support groups out there run by a range of organisations like the Mental Health Foundation, SANE, Beyond Blue. 
there's kind of heaps of them now, mm-hmm. um, and most people find them very helpful. I guess it's like a lot of things in life. When you first think about it, you think, nah, nah I'm not going to do that. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like when you're in year 12 and you thought, do I want to study with other people in a group? Nah, I don't think so. Yeah. yeah. I don't think so. Yeah, yeah. Um, but once you start, it, it does help most people. And I, I'm sure a big part of that is connectedness and not feeling alone mm. and not feeling you're the only person with the problem. That's mm. so true. And it's funny how those initially, like you say, it's quite a, it's a fear barrier to go beyond, but then once you do, it's like all the a lot of great things in life really, to be honest. It's like once you, <laughs> it's once, you, once you go past the your comfort boundary, you find the unknown and you, you discover or expand or adapt. And I suppose that's part of human evolution as well. Like we crave to evolve, I feel, all of nature, like trees, anything, you know, it desires evolution of sorts. And I feel like human evolution, it's relevant for us socially right now to evolve in this way in terms of, and we're like, we are successfully really with depression in Australia, like you say, yeah. schizophrenia is probably um, probably more hardcore mental illness, would you say? Or Well, it's interesting. I think depression is, of course, much more common. So if, if one in five people have depression at some point in their life, schizophrenia affects about 1% of the population. Gotcha. So it's certainly less common. Severe depression can be just as disabling, mm. but depression's a quite a broad church and mm. it's not a, as severe for everyone. Mm. I think schizophrenia for most people is a harder illness to imagine what that's like and ends up being kind of frightening for people a little bit that it involves these experiences that are outside anything I can imagine. Mm. So I can't imagine what it's like to hear voices or to think these thoughts as being absolutely true that clearly aren't true, the delusions of schizophrenia. Mm. And so for many people, they I think they're much more anxious about diagnoses like schizophrenia. Mm. There's that common myth that everyone with schizophrenia is somehow dangerous or something like that. Mm. I think that's still alive out there a lot more than we'd like to admit. Mm. The truth is um, most people with schizophrenia are at far greater risk of having crime committed to them or at them or whatever the right term is for that than committing a crime themselves. Um, And in terms of violence, the, the, the risk of someone with schizophrenia committing violence is extremely low. Mm. So the vast majority of people with schizophrenia, the person at risk in that situation is themselves Mm. and they really deserve our support and sympathy. Mm. It's a tough illness to deal with. Mm. Tough for them, tough for their families and other people around them, of course. Mm -mm. Um, Really tough, mm. uh, and uh, it's a, we have to move. I guess as part of that evolution, if you like, mm. we have to move from a position of fearing these things to accepting they're real, mm. and they are really tough. Mm. They are really tough. Mm. Schizophrenia, despite not being a common condition, is still amongst one of the twenty most disabling health conditions of all wow. across the globe. Wow, which shows you kind of how severe it is, despite not being that common. And if you had to describe it, it's the nature of thoughts being very, very strong and insatiably influential on one's mind. Yeah, I think that's not a bad description. So there are there are three main sets of symptoms in schizophrenia. The first ones are what we call the positive symptoms. There's the idea that these are phenomena arising in your mind that weren't there before the experience of hearing voices or seeing things, 
that aren't really there, the delusions that are fixed ideas that you're absolutely convinced about even though there's no evidence. And as you say, they can drive your life totally. So if you become convinced that you're being pursued by some malevolent force that's out to get you and is perhaps observing you or might be bugging your room or something like that, that could drive you every moment of your day. And how exhausting would that be? Mm -hmm. There's then what we call the negative symptoms, which actually probably end up being the most disabling. That's where you lose capacities you'd otherwise have, problems like losing motivation, losing your ability to plan your life normally, to judge social situations. And when you meet someone with schizophrenia, sometimes you can recognise those problems even if you don't quite know what the name is for them. Mm. And then there's what we call the cognitive symptoms where people with schizophrenia can have real troubles with things like concentrating and attending and remembering all the stuff you need to to get through your day. Mm. And, and those latter two lots of symptoms, generally the medications don't help them quite as much as they help the voices and the delusions. So that's why they can often contribute a lot to the disability for some people with schizophrenia. Right. Wow. Because what jumps out to me is like these, these like say phenomena or occurrences in one's mind can you speak to like the difference in how different cultures through time have treated certain events like this? For example, um, I heard recently Dalai Lama's got an oracle or a guy that's um, that can see things or he's a seer. And, and I suppose this is much more generally from science is more esoteric and potentially can be called woo-woo. But yeah. I mean, this guy apparently, he saw the Chinese invade in Tibet and told Dalai Lama to escape and then sure enough they did turn up and he, they escaped because I've had some friends that have gone through manic episodes and gone into psych wards and stuff and some of what they were saying to me felt profound or it felt like they were seeing something and then some of it was really dangerous and so where are we evolving in terms of helping people go through these episodes or schizophrenic? Um, well, I think we certainly need to be really careful in talking about what's a symptom of mental illness mm. and what's a person's spiritual or cultural beliefs. Okay. Now, sometimes that can be really tricky. So um, we're lucky in Melbourne. We live in a multicultural city and from time to time I'll see somebody who I think might have a psychotic illness and they've got a particular belief that I think, hmm, that's – it's a bit different to mine. I won't quite call it woo-woo, but a bit different to mine. Um, could that be a symptom of illness? I might need a, a bit of cultural assistance to say, no, actually, a lot of people in our culture will think that. And I, I need to be very careful of things like that. Otherwise, I could make some very bad mistakes. <laughs> yeah. um, and, you know, I, I, that's something yeah. um, we really need to be sensitive to. Mm. We also need to be sensitive to the fact that just because you've currently got an illness doesn't mean that everything you say is affected by that illness. Mm. So there may well be things that you're saying that are absolutely true and relevant. <laughs> yeah. So you need to always not assume just because one idea you're telling me, no, I'm pretty convinced that's a delusion, there's no reasonable mm. um, evidence, that doesn't mean the next thing you're saying is necessarily a delusion at all. Mm. So mm. need to be very much of an open mind. Mm. There's always been a school of thought among some that the material or the ideas, if you like, that come up 
when you've got a psychosis like schizophrenia have a lot of meaning and we can interpret that and tell us something. It's it's kind of alluring as an idea a little bit. Mm. Some people have even taken that to an extreme at one point, perhaps a few decades ago, and said, well, somehow having a psychotic episode can be therapeutic in itself. I think now we'd say, no. Most of the time there isn't a lot of meaning that we can interpret. Most of the time, once people are back on their feet, if you can use that expression, they're Mm. saying, wow, what was I thinking? Mm. Um, So we need to be really careful um, about not – it's almost – you can find meaning in a lot of things if you try really hard, right? (laughs) Um, Sometimes you've got to be a little bit careful about that. Um, There is a different level, though. If you have an illness like schizophrenia or depression, these are profound illnesses that – as people get better, there's often a lot of questions about, so what does this mean about my life? Particularly if I'm worried, can this come back again, for example? And mm. um, there's often a part of recovering from an illness like that is a lot of thinking about why did this happen? Sometimes there are reasons, sometimes there aren't. Mm. And that's just as important, right? Because mm. you can go looking for something that's the wrong thing. Mm. What do I need to do now to reduce the chance of that happening again? Mm. Definitely would prefer that not to happen again. Mm. And what does it mean in terms of how I understand myself? It can be quite a shock uh, for any of us to discover these things can happen to me. Mm. Um, Most of us don't wake up in the morning thinking, well, of course, I could be affected by a mental illness just like anyone else. Mm. You don't think about it, right? And you probably rest on an assumption I don't think that's going to happen. Well, if if it's true that probably about one in three of us in our life suffers from a mental health problem of some degree at some time, it can happen to any of us. Mm. And that's not about weakness or anything like that. It can happen to any of us. Mm. But then when it does, you've got to sort of integrate that and think about that quite a lot. Mm. More than ever, really, with the amount of stress that – um, we're dealing with on a day-to-day basis, even like social or tribal stress, like I heard is the fear of getting kicked out of your tribe. That fear is as strong as, you know, fear of actually dying, <laughs> apparently in your brain in terms of the drugs and the yeah, chemicals yeah, yeah. that are released. And I suppose that's linked to social media and working as much as we do. And what's that thing that releases in your brain? Cortisol? Cortisol? Cortisol, cortisol yeah, yeah. 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 A lot of cortisol is released and adrenaline is released and then we get fatigued. And, and then that's why when we have a holiday, we get exhausted and get sick because our bodies, we're not really listening to our bodies as well as we could be. We, we often talk about living in a stressful world with kind of an assumption that's a brand new thing. <laughs> that's um, <laughs> the, that's true. Yeah. I, I reckon if I lived in the era when life expectancy oh was God. 40 um, <laughs> and various infectious diseases ran rampant around the world and so wars were very common, I reckon that might have been a bit stressful. <laughs> um, in terms of mental health, though, I I think a positive change is generally we're moving in a direction where we acknowledge that's part of who we are, think about our mental health. Mm, mm. Because it's true in many societies, not all. Historically, we've tended to think that's something that happens to certain people, Mm. not to us. When it does happen to them, we'll send them to a place way away from here where we don't have to think about them. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So the fact that as... Uh, certainly in Australia as a society, we're thinking more about mental health somewhat 
is a step in the right direction. I love it. It's like we're thinking more about integrating all aspects of our nature because it's our nature. And Absolutely. Like, and like you say, we're even with cancer, anything can happen to us in, <laughs> at any time, really. And it's funny how we, yeah, like you say, even you caught me then going, we live in a real stressful time, but you're <laughs> so right. Like imagine if we're out in the jungle, always fearing for our actual life. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Oh, yeah. Uh, or uh, in the middle of the plague. I often thought that could have its moments of oh, stress. Man, yeah. that would be epic stress, like exactly. mass wipeout. Exactly, exactly. Jeez, that is that's a really good reminder, isn't it? So can I ask you, why why did you follow the profession that you have? It's interesting. I was just talking to someone about this the other day. I chose medicine first. Mm. Um, it was kind of halfway through year 12 or HSC as it was when I did, mm. you chose your university preferences. So I was 16 yeah. when I chose medicine. I didn't – there was no doctors in the family or anything like that. You kind of think, what do I really know at 16? <laughs> Not much probably <laughs> is the answer. Um, if you were doing well at school in certain subjects, people kind of encouraged you to think about courses like medicine. Mm. It seemed to me like a good thing to do helping people. Mm. And I guess the fact that it was seen as – prestigious a bit, probably probably influenced me. I'd, I'm sure at the time I would have said, no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> and I think I'd always had a bit of an interest in psychiatry. Um, I don't think I'd thought about it consciously then, mm. but certainly during the medical course I got more and more interested. Mm. Um, and I, I did my two years as an intern, a resident doctor, and went straight into psychiatry then. And I've never regretted it. Mm. And you had this big interview before you get in, right? Mm. It's kind of a weird thing. There was about 15 people round a table asking you questions. And the obvious one was, why do you want to do psychiatry? Yeah. So you prepare your pat answer, off you go. Uh, but I actually think the answer I gave was true. Number one, I got into medicine because I did like the idea of helping people who were worse off without wanting to sound too Mother Teresa about it, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. And if that motivates you, psychiatry is a good place to start because if ever there was a group in society that, you know, were disadvantaged, people with mental health problems are right up the top. Mm. I think number two, I did and still do find mental illness fascinating. Mm. What's going on mm. um, that ends up with someone feeling so despairing about the world that they can't think, they can't sleep, they can't eat, they can't concentrate, or what's going on that someone can suddenly develop a belief that someone's implanted a, a bug in their brain. Wow, you know, that's a isn't that an amazing Fascinating. thing? Fascinating. <laughs> and I, I've never lost that interest in what's fundamentally going on, not at the expense of the person that I'm seeing, don't, mm. don't get me wrong, that, mm. that would be the wrong thing. Mm. I still, probably I didn't think about this as much, as much at the time, but I've always liked the challenge of trying to treat these things. Mm. Uh, you know, it is personally satisfying when mm. it works out. Mm. It doesn't always, but it is personally satisfying when it does. I, I do like that challenge and I, I guess if you didn't, well, it's probably not the job for you. I yeah, guess. totally. Uh, it's your curiosity that fuels you to help. It's I like think so. Those three things that you said all work nicely in harmony with one another. No, I think so. <laughs> and to go on the first one, why do you care? Oh, that is a, that's a very good question. Hmm. 
you know, it, it'd be, uh, I guess people are often attracted to various things because they've had some personal experience in their family or something like that. I can't say that's the case for me. Mm. Did I have a couple of experiences with kids at school who ended up having mental health problems? Yes. Mm. And and that was quite a profound experience. But mm. do I think that determined my choice? No, look, I, I think that would be stretching it. Mm. It's a, it's a, it's a very it's a very good question and hard to Is define it, what drives yeah, it yeah. first. Is it in your intuition or something in your gut or if if there is a, a gut thing if you like, mm. I guess the idea that part of a good society is how it looks after the least mm. the least advantaged, the most disadvantaged. Yeah, I think the most yeah. disadvantaged is better, isn't it? Yeah. The helping those people has always appealed in some way without, again, I don't want to sound too, mm. you know, uh, saviour-like about it. But, um, but that's okay if you do as well. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, the, uh, that has always intrigued me. And as I got interested in psychiatry, it became very obvious very quickly that people with mental health problems are vastly overrepresented right. in the most disadvantaged. Not everyone with a mental health problem is in the most disadvantaged, but they're vastly overrepresented. Yeah. It's kind of lifting up the collective of people. You know, like if you can help the people that have fallen down and tripping over, everyone will benefit because everyone will be, you're raising the the bubble. I'm just trying to see see more of a picture type thing. I get it. I I think the other thing, the more I think about it, Mm. I guess it goes to why do I care in a way. Mm. The... So these days, part of my role is often to give sort of second opinions and I see people for one-off opinions. So mm. a lot of that is I'll take a story, I'll think about your treatment and I'll hopefully give a new idea, hopefully. Yeah. Um, and so I don't know how many hundreds or thousands of people have done that for. But I've never reached the point where people's stories aren't interesting. Mm. So in one of the great things about psychiatry is you take a history of the illness but also of the person, where they come from, what's happened in their life. Mm. I've never found that So many variables. Yeah, Uh, uh, there is. And, you know. It's like there's infinite. Yeah, very much. (laughs) And how did you get to here and how was that determined by, is that about who you are, where you were born, you know, a whole set of circumstances? It's interesting. Oh, man. it's It's kind of like reading a new story every day mm. Um, mm. and that that has always interested me. Mm. And in some ways the people who've suffered difficulties during life, their stories are more interesting, right? Mm. Um, the story of someone who succeeded is great, don't get me wrong, but, mm. you know, stories of people who had difficulties in life and their small triumphs sometimes or their big triumphs, mm. they're really interesting. Mm. Isn't that wonderful? That's beautiful. I can imagine you having this beautiful mind, big board at home where you take all these learnings and you're trying to understand the mechanics of mind and then you're drawing them up and seeing the patterns. Like what area currently are you most charmed about in terms of um, decoding the mind? One of the great challenges in research is that ultimately illnesses like depression and schizophrenia involve the brain. Mm. And often when we first say that, people say, oh, you're being very reductionistic because they're about so much. Mm. Ultimately, they're reflected in the brain. How you put all that together, though? Mm. So for some people, depression follows, let's say, bereavement. 
So how does that, uh, a dramatic event out in the external world, end up being reflected in your brain? Mm. Um, If you think about it in that interactive way, the other problem some people have is if you talk about these things as problems of the brain, some people say, yeah, but talking therapy is the best way for treatment. Mm. Well, sure, for some people that's right. Mm. The implication is that talking doesn't involve your brain. Well, of course it does. <laughs> Last time I checked it, though. <laughs> um, the, and whatever treatment works probably changes the brain in the same way. So right. we often think about the brain as if you're interested in the brain, you'll be interested just in medication or things like that. Why? Mm. Um, your brain interacts with the world around you in this myriad of interesting ways that mm. do we still understand fully? No, not completely. We've got an awfully long way to go. Mm. Um, but the, the best science tries to integrate those perspectives and that's I, I enjoy that challenge a lot. Cool. I get excited by hearing scientists talking about expanding like this and understanding like that and having that genuine, because I think all science comes from that, that genuine fire of curiosity and Mm. wonder and seeking to explain. I imagine there's a lot of, and I've heard there's a lot of things that trip you up, like in any industry or any business, ego is quite a big one I've heard in in the scientific community, but also like the pharmaceutical industry is bazillion dollar industry. So there's all these elements must come in and influence you like what's your personal challenge with keeping on task with your why you got into this and why you care you know what i'm saying yeah i know i absolutely do i and i probably think the greatest challenge in that is historically funding for research in mental health probably been a bit the poor cousin in medicine right um so one of the greatest challenges is attracting more funding to mental health research right You're quite right about various biases that operate in research. Hmm. People often jump straight to the bias associated with pharmaceutical industry because it's a not all but generally a profit-making concern. Hmm. Sure, if it's a private company, they want to make a profit, yes, surprise, surprise. (laughs) Part of the research challenge then is to think about, well, given that, how do I evaluate that research and that interaction mm. and that information? And I, I, I sometimes think in that discussion the assumption is that doctors aren't capable of doing that. Mm. I, I think most of them are, mm. Mm. Um, you know, really. Mm. And we need to acknowledge that the pharmaceutical industry has produced things that have been enormously helpful to us. Massively, yeah. So, you know, the but equally do other things come with biases? Personal? Um, mm. I, I it's just not possible for me to imagine that ego could play a role. Um, <laughs> You're far too charming of a man. But sure. Um, the, and, and do people also have other biases? So are there people who have strong beliefs about other causes of mental illness that are just as determined only their belief can be true mm. and none others are worth considering? Mm. Absolutely. Mm. And there are still people out there who have a bias where they really – doubt the existence of mental illness, something I find hard to comprehend. Mm. Um, So there are still lots of challenges in sort of joining us up together in saying, Mm. just like cancer, this is a set of human problems that we really need to tackle head on, Mm. get real about and find better ways to help. Mm. Beautiful. (laughs) Man, I love your work. (laughs) 
<laughs> what are you developing next in your in your world? Well, we've got a few things at the moment. Um, probably my major areas of research in the minute are around problems with mood like depression and bipolar disorder mm. and also post-traumatic stress disorder, which has been a long-standing interest. Mm. I, I guess in the depression area we're spending a time we, – we've diagnosed depression on the basis of some classic symptoms of depression, but in our understanding of it we're beginning to think we, we've not really described the full extent properly of how it impacts on people. Mm. So, for example, we've always acknowledged that in depression people have some problems with thinking and concentration, but we've probably underestimated just how big an impact that has. Mm. We've also begun to look a little bit more about what does returning to normal look like. Mm. So we've been very interested that lots of people talk about I'm no longer feeling sad or guilty or all those things that came with being depressed. Mm. So that's great and treatment up to this point has helped. But I'm not back to my old self yet. Mm. Uh, Part of that might be I haven't got back into my roles yet, but part of it might also I just don't feel quite normal yet, like Mm. able to enjoy things fully the way I used to. Mm. So like if you just happened to barrack for Richmond, you know, Mm. Mm -hmm. you should be feeling joy at the moment. Mm. Like I am. Just hey, well, congratulations. <laughs> uh, the just thought I'd slip. The uh, um, the I, I haven't recovered that yet. Even haven't recovered the ability to feel normally sad. There is normal sadness. That's a part of you know um, mm. our existence. Mm. So full recovery is about having all that full emotional range back, mm. getting into all your roles. I. Th- think sometimes with our current treatment of depression, mm. we stop a little bit at you're not depressed anymore, good, but that's not the same as being fully recovered necessarily. Mm, so true. It's a massive difference. There was for me, like, and it felt like a gradual one, you know. It yeah. felt like a slow, 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 and then I, I think I'm a footstep away from this cloud, and that was like a nine-month period where I felt like one foot away from it and I had another like probably 10 to go before I'm back to my normal self again. So I, it is a yeah understanding and empathetic perspective on yourself, and mainly just getting perspective is <laughs> is really is really beneficial, isn't it? And, that's and it what, does take some months. You're quite right. Mm, uh, this is a bit more radical, but I am interested a bit in the areas of s- sudden changes in our psyche. For example, like plant-based medicines in Peru, and I wonder if you have opinion on that or the benefits there could be with like ayahuasca or DMT releasing or shifting the mind state and they still have to go away and do the work on themselves you know but it it opens their eyes gives them a direct experience of altered mindset and of course that can be very dangerous mm. but um there might be in microdoses i don't know i'm just hypothesizing there might be benefits in small amounts to to it well there's been two long-standing threads in a way one we know that certain classes of, let's call them illicit drugs for the minute, um, are capable of producing uh, mental health abnormalities. So drug-induced psychosis is something we recognise very well. Mm. And for perhaps particularly vulnerable people who've got other risks, uh, high levels of cannabis misuse or methamphetamine, you know, 
we, we see patients who've got psychosis induced by that all the time. That's worrying. There's been a long-standing interest in the hallucinogens. Mm. Can they provide these new insights? And certainly people who've used them talk about, you know, I developed new insights into something or other mm. while I was using them. A- and people have sort of dabbled with the idea of their use to help particularly people who get blocked at a certain point in their recovery. Mm. Um, So they've got depression or some other uh, mental health disorder, some anxiety. They're kind of progressed up to a point, the idea that this might help them move forward. Um, Unfortunately, a lot of the data we have dating back it's not very well controlled data. So mm, mm. Fred says this was wonderful and it made me a new person. Mm. It's very hard to know the science of that, doesn't it? Mm. You know what we really like. Yes, I know it's a bit boring. Are these randomised mm. trials um, where we subject a number of people and we compare it to standard treatment? Mm. Do all that proper science, mm. and we still don't have a lot of that. Mm. Um, there's a little bit developing now, and that's a, a very good thing. Is that particular? Sorry, is that particularly in America? Because I've heard they're quite yeah. progressive of all that stuff, and there seems to be an upswelling around it, from what I'm hearing. Yeah, there is. There is. It's sort of waxed and waned over the years, but there is yeah. a little bit of a resurgence of an interest in uh, ecstasy. And my line has always been: Look, I don't know. I'm probably erring on the side of sceptical. Mm but let's subject it to proper scientific trial. That's the way to find out. Yeah, 100%. Because um, otherwise this stuff sort of hangs around out there, you know. If you if you go to Dr. Google, you can find <laughs> all sorts of stuff out there. <laughs> yeah. um, the And it can be very hard if you don't know how to evaluate that properly. 100%. So somebody said on the internet, gee, it must be true. The, and... <laughs> Look for quality evidence uh, where mm. people have subjected it to good scientific study. Mm. Fred or Betty says, I tried it and I'm a new person. Well, um, advertisers have been doing that for a long time and we <laughs> normally don't believe them, do we? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> what does it take for lab tests and such? Like, yeah, to, right. Is it generally a massive million-dollar minimum spend you need to – or it's time as well, I imagine? And Yeah, y- You'd look for a couple of things, I think. Um, You would look for size of study. So a very rough rule of thumb, if something hasn't been in, uh, excuse me, put into a study involving 100 people or more, Mm. remain sceptical. New traditional pharmaceuticals that come to the market will usually have been trialled in several thousand people Mm. before they can get licensed. Wow. Um, but so that, that would be very, very expensive. Oh, yeah, huge, yeah. huge. Yeah. Uh, the the pharmaceutical companies talk about an investment of between one and two billion to get each new drug to market. Now, that's not a bad thing in one sense because it also gives us not just data about whether this stuff actually works, but a lot of data about safety, usually including safety over a, a longer period of time, mm. so many months. Mm. We should have that before something new becomes available. Mm. Why is it so expensive? Because to me, if you want to innovate quickly and trial lots of new things, but there seems to be this huge, huge mountain to climb in order to get a product to market. Look, you're right. And the fact that it can take, you know, seven or eight years, even Mm. longer, you think, well, 
What about all the people missing out in the meantime? The reason for that is initial evidence in small numbers of people can be full of false promises. Mm. Um, So we read every day in the paper, don't we, about new drug to cure Alzheimer's. Mm. Every second day or I forget, (laughs) but no, uh, very frequently. And, well, it can't be true because so far we don't have a cure for Alzheimer's, right? right? Often that's based on very preliminary studies that look promising but with appropriate further study either proved to not be effective or not tolerable and not safe. Right. So we've got examples of where people have tried to rush things in the past that Mm. have ended tragically is probably the truth. Wow. Um, So we really – I think that due caution is the right thing even though Mm. it does have a tension. I I accept that. Mm. I think that it does also create a dilemma for things that come outside that well-funded traditional route. So – how do we get funded good research to look at whether a plant product not being developed by a major company could be useful or not? Mm. And often that can be really hard to track the funding to find out. Mm. So we sort of struggle along with maybe evidence that we're not sure about. Right. It's, it's a real problem. Quite right. It's so interesting because like in an ideal world, it would be great, wouldn't it, to have anyone that's going for anything go, right, this is the array <laughs> and having a really good opinion to go, you know, have a true yep. perspective on all of them and go, there are risks of this, hasn't been tried in that area. Okay, well, that sounds good to me. I'm going to try that. And then I'm going to happy to own the risks. And but it's a very complicated area. It is a complicated equation. Even, yeah, yeah, a, a patient right. might be not well in good sound mind. Right. And you know, look, decision making is a complex thing. Many people with mental health problems, uh, there can be issues with your own awareness of illness. Mm. Some of the treatments we use in mental health, some of the medications aren't easy to take. That's mm. true. Mm. Say when you're severely depressed, believing that it's going to work can be really difficult. Mm. Um, so true. <laughs> there's always this, or, or not always, that's not true, but there's sometimes a sense, well, if it's alternative, it must be better, it's natural. Mm. Um, it's an interesting notion, isn't it? There are mm. lots of things in the natural world um, I wouldn't rush to. Um Mm. Snakes are natural, and I've never <laughs> been that fond of them. Um, you know, so that that assumption has some flaws in it. Yeah, that's true. The, but the level of money that people spend on so-called natural remedies for illnesses like depression and anxiety is extraordinary in Australia. Actually, more oh, really? than they spend on you know medicines as we'd usually think of them. Oh, really? Yeah. Australians spend more on alternative health treatments than on medications for depression and anxiety. That's incredible. It is. That says a lot about the state of consciousness of the collective people. It does. <laughs> it does. It's a very interesting fact. And look, it tells us people are looking for answers and we're not mm. meeting all their needs too. I think you know, mm. there's a lot of things in it tells us. It also tells me that I should invest in a company that are going to make some natural remedies. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and, and I think it's an interesting thing, isn't it, that companies are companies. Yeah. So do those companies also seek to do well? Of course they do. Yeah, no, like, I, well, true. I don't know, in a sense, blame them for that, but thinking they're any different, why would you think that? It's funny in that the picture that's painted around natural is 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 being twisted. It certainly can be. <laughs> it it can certainly be. can be, sorry again. Yeah. You've got a very good ability, i got to say, Malcolm, to dis- discern <laughs> um, information. I think that's... 
that's um, something I'm trying to get more and more better at and meditation certainly helps me because I, I find only when I'm still I can see clearer because there's less thoughts and less um, bombardments. But the, you, you've got a great ability to be able to discern truth, non-truth. Uh, maybe I've got a few years practice. Yeah. <laughs> you are the, um, it is interesting, uh, I guess. Uh, you don't think about how you think yourself that much, yeah. do you? But the I think in psychiatry it is really important to be able to recognise what we do know and what we don't know. Mm. Um it is very important to be able to acknowledge there's an awful lot we don't know as well. Mm. And uh, mm. I, I think if if as doctors we try to come across as if we know it all in psychiatry, people won't believe us. Mm. And it's not true. It's not because it's just not true. That's right. Yeah. We've still got an awful lot to learn. Yeah. Wow. But you do know a lot. I've got to say, <laughs> Professor, I got thank you a thousand times for coming on. I've loved how you're really Brilliant. open and you want to – find the truth and I think you can only do that when you're open yeah and, it's very true um, so well done thank you <laughs> thank you that <Thank> <laughs> sounds so patronising yeah. a dumb little boy like me saying well done to a professor <laughs> uh, <laughs> thank you <laughs> thanks so much <laughs> <laughs>